Welcome to the John Gets Games podcast, where in today's episode, you'll be hearing the audio from a recent Good Games vlog. Now, that vlog was actually recorded live, so you will be hearing me answer some questions that people commented in about, and the games I'll be discussing are On Tour, The Search for Planet X, Transcontinental, and Umbravia. Now, as always, I do want to mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support that comes in through the Patreon campaign for the channel. If you enjoy listening to my vlogs in podcast form like this, then I do hope that you would consider directly supporting the campaign, and you can learn more about that by going to patreon.com slash Games. The final thing I'd like to ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I mentioned today, that you please leave that as a comment on the YouTube page for the vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. Uh, the first game is going to be On Tour. Uh, now, this is a game that came out, uh, well, about two years ago, it looks like, and this is one I've heard about a little bit over the years. It's a roll-and-write style game where you are thematically trying to book a tour for your band across America or Europe. Uh, now, this game didn't really jump out to me because it came out in a time when there were a ton of roll and rights happening. So I kind of saw it in passing and didn't really think much about it. But then I uh, I played Bytes from BoardGameTables.com, the publisher, and um, they asked to send me a copy and they asked if I wanted on tour as well. So I said yes. And I'm glad I did because I have been able to play this one so far. And uh, let's talk about how it plays. Uh, now out here, you can see we have um, a, a board in front of us. Uh, this is a roll and write game that actually uses dry erase markers instead of having um, a piece of paper and a pencil. And uh, we, uh, I've only played it once and we played the Europe map. Um, there's an America map on the other side. Uh, now, mechanically, the way this game works is very simple. Uh, you have these two large D10 dice and every single uh, round, essentially, uh, both of those dice are going to be rolled. Then you will deal out three random cards and then everyone around the table, it, this plays up to eight people, everyone around the table will simultaneously uh, do something. And once everybody has taken their turn, we discard the cards, roll the dice again, and then then deal out three more cards. So the, what you do is, is a really neat take for dice rolling games. I haven't seen this mechanic before, where you are going to write two numbers down onto your board, and those both come from these two dice. You have to uh, bring those digits together. So in this example, we have a nine and a three. So that means you have to write a 93 somewhere on your map, and you have to write a 39 somewhere on your map. Uh, so if you rolled a zero three, then you would write a three and a 30 as well. Um, now, the way the tour actually works throughout the map of Europe, in this case, is you start with the lowest number and you continue up onto equal or higher numbers until you stop. Um, you don't actually have to start with the absolute lowest number on your board. You're just trying to score the best overall tour that you have. And um, right here, we have an image of uh, the game about halfway done. Uh, now on the map, we have Europe and there's a bunch of lines between all of the various cities. And the rulebook actually recommends that you start drawing lines between cities, uh, mapping out the potential tour that you're going to be doing. Um, this is a dry erase style game. So that means you can modify your tour as you go. And in this case, I have several um, little lines connecting various spots where I think it's unlikely I'll be able to uh, better that specific part of the route. Because again, these are just numbers and you are matching or exceeding. So when you have a three and a five, I think it's pretty unlikely I'll get the four to put it in between. So I put the line between there to say, this is probably what's going to happen on that leg of the tour if I end up using it. So again, you find the, the best leg of the tour, the best uh, connected set of cities that ascend uh, to give you the most points at the end of the game, and that's the one you'll go with. And the points are really simple in this game. Uh, you are simply going to be uh, getting one point for every single city that you go through, and if the city is circled, then you get an extra point. And the cities become circled if you actually write into the city that matches on the cards. So the cards have two big pieces of information. They have a region, an area like south, west, 
um, north, central, that kind of thing. And they all also have a single uh, country on them on the Europe side or a state on the America side. Now, if you write the number into that specific uh, uh, state or country, then you get to circle that uh, state or country. And if you end up going through there on your tour, you get plus one victory points, one for just going through that city and plus one for the circle. So what that means is <laughs> this game does a really good job of leading you astray um, because, you know, the mechanics are very simple. You just roll the dice, write two numbers down. Uh, I did forget to mention that each of the two numbers has to match up with a single one of the cards. So every single round, each player is going to utilize two out of the three cards. So that means you have these number restrictions where you're trying to make this ascending tour that's going to be wrapping around uh, the map. And you also, you know, have to pick a specific card. Um, and then it has that allure of saying, well, if you put the number on that specific city, you get double points. So what that means is it kind of pushes you uh, to make mistakes <laughs> or to, I guess, push the envelope to a certain extent because you want bonus points. You want to circle these cities. But uh, very often when you actually decide, okay, I am going to go into Montenegro, um, well, what if that's a little bit of a stretch? What if that's a couple cities away? And what if there's only nine numbers between the previous city there and the next one that you want to connect these two up? Maybe you'll actually get no points for that instead of getting double points for going through there. And I really liked the way it was um, actually pushing you into these difficult decisions. Because if the cards did not have these uh, state or uh, country names on them, it would be much more flexible. You just place it into one of the very large uh, regions that show up on those cards, and you just have lots of flexibility to place things down. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but I love that extra temptation, that little, uh, you know, devil or angel or, you know, figure on your shoulder uh, tempting you to do the riskier thing. Uh, now, as this game goes on, you're just going to keep playing until every single uh, location has a number on it. And then you score it, as I mentioned before. And um, as you can see, uh, there are pretty winding different uh, routes you can take. But uh, crucially, there is some randomness to this game. Like, there is definitely great decisions you can make. But in the example that I have here, I got 31 points. And I started over in Turkey, and I ended up in Ukraine, kind of wrapping all the way around Europe. But the final number, the very last number that I put down, was Germany, which is right in the middle of this chain. So this is a 31-point scoring tour. But if I had not rolled a number between between 50 and 64, on that very last die roll of the game, my score would have been halved. <laughs> I would have had to go either the northern tour, uh, I guess going from, I believe, Denmark over to Ukraine, or I would have just done Turkey over to, oh man, it's really hard to tell, but, you know, somewhere in near Poland, Switzerland, I think. I, I put marker right over the name. Sorry about that. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of intelligent uh, thinking that you have to do when you're playing this game. And you also need to play the odds to a certain extent as well. Like I thought I was being really creative with some of the potential routes I was doing. In fact, I have some uh, routes that I was really hopeful about that ended up getting erased. Um, in the tour, we, uh, this tour, we went from Germany up to Denmark and then up to uh, Norway. But I also had uh, the possibility of going to Sweden and Lithuania, um, hoping to wrap around through Poland. I had the numbers that were really close. They um, almost uh, matched up. But by the time I uh, actually had to fill in the numbers, I had to put a one down into Poland, which kind of broke all of that up. Unfortunately, I was able to stay flexible um, near the very end of the game. I had Germany and Poland both open to try and connect these two parts of the tour together. And it ended up working out for me. Um, now, I didn't win. I actually played a four-player game of this, and I came in third. So um, even though I got a little bit lucky with that very last die roll, um, it was still not enough to, like, catapult me up into the lead. The winning score, I think, was 38. And I think a big reason why I didn't win this game 
is because I kind of ignored the entire uh, Western part of Europe, uh, United Kingdom, uh, France, and Spain. Um, I, I essentially threw numbers that weren't working out very well uh, uh, everywhere else on the map down over there after it became relatively obvious that I would not be able to pull something through there. Uh, I did hope to swing through the United Kingdom near the end of the game, but um, I actually had to put an X on that spot, and you put X's down when you have no legal place to put the dice. So uh, that happens when you're pretty late on in the game. Uh, now, there are also stars out here, and you can place those down, there are wild numbers whenever doubles are rolled on the dice or when all three of the cards laid out are the same region. So uh, the stars are wonderful things to see. Like everyone is very happy to see those because they can really increase your flexibility. Um, I have a star down at the bottom that connected up uh, uh, a 30 up to a 32. Uh, I don't believe, actually, no, I did end up rolling a 31 at some point later on in the game. I remember saying, man, I wish I could have just put that 31 on the star and gone somewhere else, but this is a dice game and you have to kind of keep that in mind. Uh, now, uh, I've just played this game once. We played it four players, and again, it plays up to eight, uh, because technically no one is the active player. You can have the same person rolling the dice every single round. Um, this is one of those games you could play with a thousand people if everybody had a board in front of them. And then you just try to see who did the best with the input randomness of the dice. Um, and I, I really enjoyed this one. I, I love that idea of the dice where um, you just roll these two dice and then you have these uh, two difficult decisions. Uh, sometimes the numbers are really close. Like if you roll a 97, well, you put a 79 and a 97 down, which are relatively uh, close to each other. But you roll a 91 and now you have a 19 and a 91 you have to place, which hypothetically you might want to put very far away from yourself. But you can also wrap around. Uh, at the end of the game, um, like I said, I went from Turkey over to to Ukraine, which are actually relatively close to each other. Uh, I just went through a, a long path throughout Europe on my tour to actually end up getting there. Uh, so yeah, I was impressed with the puzzle that this game brought. Um, this one was played late in an evening, uh, and when I, I went out to teach it for the very first time, I said, you know, you know, it's, it's late in the evening, this game has almost no rules, I could probably teach this in about a minute. Um, so, like, this seems like a good game for that time period. And I'm not saying I was wrong, but while the rules are very simple, the decisions can be quite uh, difficult, <laughs> especially uh, when you get to that middle stage of the game. Early on in the game, you have all sorts of opportunities, all sorts of options. When you get to the middle, that's when you start to feel the uh, walls closing in <laughs> as you're like, how am I actually going to piece all of these pieces, uh, these different parts of the tour together into one epic tour to get me the most points? And then near the very end of the game, um, it, it almost feels a little bit less strategic and more like, you know, uh, a, a casino game <laughs> where you're just desperately hoping to see a certain die result on the dice. Uh, in the beginning of the game, you don't really care what the dice say. In the middle of the game, most die rolls are going to be good for you. So there's this interesting arc about your relationship with the dice where early on they are just, you know, information that you use, and late in the game, you're just desperately wishing and praying that these dice give you the, the numbers that you want, um, and if they do, then, you know, that's obviously a big high moment. I was so happy when that last die roll let me put a 64 onto Germany, and I remember I thought, like, I might have just won the game, you know, by doing that. Like, I was so lucky. My score went from 15 up to 31, and then I found out I actually came in third place. But it was still a really good moment. Uh, so, yeah, I'm impressed with On Tour. I'm, I'm looking forward to playing this one more. I think everyone who played it enjoyed it. Um, while it is a roll and write in a very crowded space, I felt like the die, uh, the dice mechanic where you roll those two D10s uh, was quite fresh. And this is also <laughs> an interesting game in that there are essentially no rules for uh, placing, uh, for the uh, adjacency placement of the things out on the map. I've played lots of um, roll and write uh, games where um, even they have simple rules like, oh, two numbers can't be next to each other or something. This is a game where it just says all of the decisions about where you go is just scoring. Like you could put any number anywhere as long as it matches up with a card, which I guess is a rule, but that's as close as you get to restrictions. And I, I was really 
I was really impressed with uh, that, and I'm looking forward to playing this one more, especially uh, the America map, because it seemed like that one was a little less long in the paths. Like on the Europe map, you have uh, Greece all the way over to Portugal. Um, Portugal goes all the way up to Ireland, like some really big paths that can make your tour seem even more spread out. Uh, whereas in America, it doesn't seem like there's any of those gigantic paths like that. All right, let's now move on to the next game. And this one is The Search for Planet X. Uh, now this is a one to four player game. And uh, we played a four player game of this one actually right before we played uh, on tour. And this is a competitive deduction style game. Uh, but by deduction, I, I mean like, like Sudoku kind of deduction or um, uh, nonograms or, you know, that kind of logic puzzles where you have uh, uh, a limited amount of information and you're trying to make deductions about where you can go. Um, obviously, those two are very number based and this one is um, more about information because in this game, uh, thematically, you're all astronomers trying to find planet X, uh, which is a planet that people think probably exists way out beyond Pluto. Um, based off of how things move gravitationally, it seems like there's a big object out there, and it's called Planet X, and uh, this game has a theme of trying to find it, which is pretty cool. Um, I've actually watched some documentaries about Planet X, so that uh, intrigued me even more about this one. So I was able to play a four-player game of this one, uh, and it was taught to me. And uh, let's just jump into talking about how this game plays. Uh, now, in the middle of the table, you have a big board, and it shows the night sky going through various seasons. And every player has a little... Um, uh, observation uh, uh, laboratory uh, token that's going to kind of cruise around the map. And on your turn, you are going to take an action, which is going to take a certain amount of time. Uh, the amount of time is different for the different actions that you can take. Uh, you are going to be researching, you're going to be surveying the sky, and you're going to be doing some other things as well, although those are the two primary things that you do. Uh, now, every time you, uh, you spend time, you just move clockwise around, and it's your turn when your token is farthest to the back, which is a mechanic I've seen in many games. And in general, I really like to see. Now, in the middle of the table, you have the uh, night sky, as I said, and it's split into 18 different regions. Uh, this is actually the expert mode. I believe the standard mode has 12 regions, but we decided to just jump right off and do the expert version of the game right away. Now, um, in each of these regions, there's spots to put player tokens, and effectively, in every one of the 18 areas, there is some type of celestial object. Uh, in this game, there are comets, asteroids, dwarf planets, gas clouds, Planet X is out there as well, just one of that, and then truly empty sectors. And um, every single one of the spots is one of those things. Um, there are exactly two gas clouds. There are exactly four dwarf planets. And then there are rules, uh, logical rules, based off of how these different objects interact with each other. For example, comets only show up on specific sectors. Uh, those sectors have little comet icons on them. Uh, the asteroids have to be adjacent to at least one other asteroid. So that means um, you will never have a single asteroid. You might have two asteroids next to each other, or you could have all four asteroids next to each other. Uh, dwarf planets show up in specific bands of six with a, uh, uh, six different uh, options. So essentially the dwarf planets are always uh, kind of close to each other. Gas clouds are always next to a truly empty spot. And planet X is never next to a dwarf planet and is always going to appear empty. And this is the tricky thing about this game because as you are going through the game, taking actions, you're going to be learning things like, oh, there are so many uh, dwarf planets out there or so many gas clouds. And you might be like, oh, there's nothing there. It's empty space. 
or it could be planet X. You're never going to do a uh, survey action and say, hey, planet X is there. That would obviously make for a pretty boring game. Uh, now, mechanically, uh, the big thing that you're going to be doing is surveying, and everybody has a player sheet in front of them behind a shield so that nobody can see the notes that they're taking, and you actually write down what you've done on every one of your turns, and you want to write down the actions of all of your opponents because you could definitely glean information based off of what you know they have tried and then their actions based off of after they've taken those specific previous actions. Um, if somebody surveys an area that overlaps with an area that you surveyed, and then they do a different type of survey, which seems strange, well, you could probably read into that because odds are good your opponent is not playing randomly. They know something that you don't, and you want to try to infer what that is. Now, specifically, the way the surveys work is you are going to be uh, uh, looking at the night sky, there's always half of the night sky that is available to you, and you can survey up to all of that or smaller chunks. And the smaller band you survey, the more time it takes because you have to really look in deep. And um, let's say, for instance, uh, you surveyed right here, uh, you surveyed from 15 all the way to 5, and you surveyed for dwarf planets. Then what happens is you actually have to use an app. Um, this game does require the use of an app. I used the iPhone version. Other people used Android. I'm not sure if there's a browser-based version. It wouldn't surprise me if there is. And um, you plug it in. Uh, you actually say, okay, surveying 15 through 5, looking for dwarf planets, and then the app will tell you how many dwarf planets are out there. It doesn't tell you where they are. It just tells you um, how many there are in that band. So obviously, if you search for dwarf planets on half the night sky, that's going to tell you a decent amount. But if you search for just like three sectors, that's going to tell you a lot more information, uh, specifically if you get a hit like, oh, there's one dwarf planet there. Uh, or even there are no dwarf planets there can be enough to help you out with some of the other things that you're doing. Now, by other things that you're doing, I mostly mean research. Uh, so every time you play this game, there is going to be a set of um, research rules, essentially, that the app randomly makes. And it's the same for everybody. You use the same seed code to uh, when you're using the app. And um, it essentially generates the night sky based off of the base logic rules and these special rules that happen. But you don't know what they are at the beginning of the game. So on your turn, you can spend one of your time to actually research one of these rules. For example, in our game, uh, I researched rule C. And I knew before I even researched that it related to dwarf planets and asteroids. So um, I did that because I wanted to learn something about asteroids, I remember. I knew quite a bit about dwarf planets at this point. So then what the app told me is that there are no dwarf planets adjacent to asteroids. So that is a new rule, which is not going to be in the game every single time you play. It just happened to be in our play. And then I could use that based off of my information on the dwarf planets. And on our sheet behind our shield, we also have all of these options. And you are just crossing things off as you learn things, circling things as you become very confident about what those things are. And a big part of this game involves putting out um, research papers, essentially studies, on what you think is out there. Uh, now, this is a victory point game. You win if you have the most points. You do get a lot of points for finding uh, Planet X, but it's possible that you could win without uh, being the person to find Planet X. And I'll talk about finding it in just a second. And that's because at uh, certain times throughout the game, players are going to be putting down these tokens onto the sectors. Um, you put them face down, and on the back of each of these tokens, it shows one of the objects like asteroids or dwarf planets or gas clouds, although there's never one for empty space or Planet X. So everybody at certain points in the game will uh, reveal how many they're doing, but they're face down, and you'll put them down onto the very outer parts of the board. And every subsequent time when you do a publication, you move these down. You actually move them down immediately, but then you keep scooting these down until these publications hit the inner ring. And the moment that happens, you flip them over. So 
a decent amount of time has happened since you wrote that paper and now it'll be revealed and then you plug it into your app and you say, okay, you know, in uh, sector two, is it a dwarf planet? And the app will either say yes or no. Um, if it is a yes, then you leave it there and you flip any others on that row and you get a bonus point for being the first person and you will get victory points at the end of the game for getting that right. Um, but if I had put, I was purple in this game, the, the dwarf uh, planet spot on sector two and the app said that it's not a dwarf planet, it's something else, then I would just remove this and I would actually lose one time I would go forward one time on the track to show, I guess, that my prestige is getting lessened or something in the academic community. Uh, but anyway, once the game is over, you actually get victory points, a varying amount of victory points for the correct papers that you wrote based off of the different things. So every time you get a correct dwarf planet out there, you get two victory points. Every time you get a correct gas cloud, you get four victory points, which is, um, you know, obviously a lot more than the dwarf planets, but there are only two gas clouds and there are four of the dwarf planets. So maybe it'll be a little bit harder to figure that out. Now, um, that is essentially the base uh, loop of the game. You are going to be um, surveying and you are going to be researching and there are other things that you can do. Uh, the main one is actually trying to find Planet X. Uh, this is something that you do for your entire turn. And on that turn, you actually have to, uh, I think, spend five time, uh, which is a lot. Actually, this uh, board state right here is right after Planet X had been found. Uh, the blue player shot uh, all the way up to the front uh, and they got it, they, they figured it out. and. The game is not about just finding Planet X. You have to know a lot about it. And by that, I mean you have to know where Planet X is out of the 18 sectors, and you have to know exactly what is to the left and to the right of Planet X. So you essentially have to know everything about those three sectors with the middle one being Planet X. And you actually put that into the app, and it says if you're right or not. If you're not, then you just spent five time, which is bad. <laughs> you don't want to do that. But um, if you are correct, then that puts the game into um, the end game state, where then everybody uh, no longer takes turns, everybody will simultaneously also try to figure out where Planet X is. Everyone gets one shot, uh, and depending on where they are compared to the person who figured it out, you get more victory points, actually. Uh, in this instance, I was purple, and I was one, two, three, four, five time behind the uh, blue player. And uh, in that case, if we look at our player sheet, that is actually going to give you 10 victory points if you are five or more time behind the uh, player who gets it. So that means if I had gotten it right, I would have had just as many victory points as the person who got it correct. Whereas other players who were maybe uh, spending more time than I did would have gotten less points for being closer. Now, in this instance, <laughs> uh, no one else got it. And it was really interesting because... As I said, you're writing these papers and putting these tokens out there, and, and when they're correct, you leave them there, which means you are broadcasting real hard information to everyone around the table. Uh, the moment uh, this token was flipped over to say that Sector 2 was a dwarf planet, Everybody knows that Sector 2 is a dwarf planet. You can mark that on your sheet, and then you can absolutely have cascading effects going off of that. And um, <laughs> over in the Sector 13 area, we had a really interesting situation where I knew for a fact that both of the gas clouds were within sectors 13 through 15. But there's only two gas clouds, and that's three spots. So that means I, if I put a paper down, it was kind of a guess, but... You don't lose a lot by being wrong, and those gas clouds are worth four victory points at the end of the game, which is almost half of what you get for finding Planet X. So I decided, I had a, you know, a two and three shot, uh, placing it down, I put the token into the 13 spot. Now, as we were playing this game, the person who won, <laughs> uh, they actually did a lot of very similar things to me as I was playing the game. And they knew that uh, the gas clouds were also over here, but they knew for sure, for a fact, that 15 was one of the gas clouds. So they knew the other one was on 13 or 14. And they had seen that I put a publication out into 13. They knew that I had been searching for dwarf planets and gas clouds just like them. So they figured that I knew for a fact that 13 was actually a gas cloud. When I didn't, it was 
you know, I, I was pretty confident, but I didn't know for sure. So for them, it was a coin flip between 13 and 14. For me, I knew two of those three were. And the person who won, the person who figured out where Planet X was, based their entire theory on the idea that I am correct over here in 13. If I had been wrong, if 13 had not been a gas cloud, then the person who won, their, their entire logical train would have crumbled. And so they actually won because I guessed correctly about putting a cloud over here and they read into my guess, if that makes sense. Uh, because they don't know how confident I am about putting this here because again, the penalty for being wrong is not devastating. It's not great. Losing one time is definitely significant, but it's not great. And that was really fascinating. Now, unfortunately for me, I was about to take the next turn. And on that turn, I was going to uh, do some research which would have really helped things out. But having the Planet X be found on that turn left me largely in the dark. Um, I, I made my best guess and I missed. And once the uh, scores were over, actually, I came in second place, which was pretty cool. I mean, the person who found Planet X won by a pretty long shot. I think my score was 13 and the winning score was 21. You get 10 victory points for finding Planet X uh, for being the first player and up to 10 for being the other player. So, you know, that is the name of the game. And I have to say that um, this was a fun game. <laughs> it was a really taxing game in an interesting way because these are the kind of logic puzzles that I don't actually do very often. Uh, my wife, Jessica, who was playing this with us, um, she does. And uh, she definitely, uh, uh, I think, liked it even more than I did. It definitely leaned into, you know, the kind of mental pathways that work out really well for her. Um, but for me, man, I found myself feeling constantly like, I was missing something. Like, I have all of this information. I have all of that information. What can I glean from it? In fact, in this game, um, uh, out there on the board, uh, everyone but myself figured out that the asteroids, there are two asteroids on 9 and 10. And um, uh, one of the players figured it out based off of um, action that I haven't really talked about that I don't really need to. And the other players figured out based off of the first player's actions that those must be asteroids. They place those down there. And I totally missed that. Uh, I'm actually kind of surprised I came in second place considering all of the victory points I missed for not seeing that. And that had nothing to do with the turns that those players took. That was entirely about them looking at the actions that somebody else took. So <laughs> these are all just complicated things that you have to keep in mind. And it is very satisfying. But I will admit that um, at a four-player game, it took a little while and there was a decent amount of downtime. Uh, now, it wasn't downtime like I'm sitting here bored. It was downtime like everybody's sitting there with their wheels just spinning like crazy. And then it's like, oh crud, it's my turn. Uh, what the heck am I gonna do? <laughs> like, it's almost like a hot potato thing where you don't want it to be your turn because you're you're just, you feel always like you, you have enough information to glean even more and you don't quite see it yet. And uh, you know, that can be frustrating in a satisfying way, I suppose. I definitely felt like I learned a lot about how to play this game better over the course of this game. Um, uh, even really simple things like the fact uh, that if you know something on your player sheet, for example, uh, in the sector two, I knew that it was a dwarf planet and I circled it. It took me like many turns to realize, oh, I can cross everything else off. <laughs> like that's a really simple thing. Like every sector can be only one thing, but it took me a surprisingly long amount of time to say, oh, I could cross everything else off. And the more things you cross, the more you can learn about things because of the interactions of the different research uh, rules that are come in the game, as well as the base rules. So I was really impressed by the game. I could definitely see myself playing this one again. Um, it's definitely a quiet game. As I said, you're not really talking to anybody. There are certainly times where somebody says, I'm going to survey, you know, you know, two to uh, 15 or whatever it is, uh, gas clouds. And somebody else will say, gas clouds? Didn't you just survey gas clouds? And then everybody goes, 
what the heck are they doing? They spent two turns in a row surveying gas clouds. And then you look down and you see what they've done before and you see what you know and what you see what they hypothetically know. And then you try to leverage that knowledge to your advantage. So yeah, this is a fascinating game. Uh, there is a normal version, as I said, which I believe is 12 sectors. And the rules for uh, the logic for the empty sectors and the dwarf planets are different, although I'm not exactly sure how. Um, I might try that at some point, but it wouldn't surprise me if I continue to play this version of the game. Um, it was really cool to play a competitive logic uh, game like that, and I was happy to come in second place. I will admit that there is there is certainly room for a bit of luck in this game. Uh, on my very first turn, I decided to survey for dwarf planets uh, between um, a couple of sectors, I, I think one through nine. And when I did that survey, one through nine, which is half of the night sky, it told me that all four of the dwarf planets were there which is huge information. Like in this game, when you know that everything is within your survey, you can cross everything else out. Uh, so for example, I knew that. I could instantly say, okay, half the map is not dwarf planets. The other half is. So within those nine spots, there are four dwarf planets. That's a tremendous amount of information for one turn. Whereas when uh, Jessica took her first turn, um, she did a survey for, actually she researched, and then she surveyed for asteroids. And she got a partial hit. I think she, uh, on her sheet, she wrote like, you know, one or two or something like that. So that was certainly good information, but it didn't allow her to exclude as much of the night sky as it did for me. And on my first turn, when I did that survey, uh, the person who won also did that exact same survey, which is why we did so many similar things throughout the game, because on our very first turn, we got kind of lucky with this this golden nugget of the dwarf planets are absolutely in this half. Pay attention to that. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, I think that's, it's definitely a factor in the game. Like there is, I guess you would call it randomness um, uh, to a certain extent, but you definitely try to leverage things as best you can. And um, <laughs> I've rambled about this one for a while. Uh, so let's uh, see if anybody else has any comments about this one. Uh, the Dice Matrix says you played a four-player game, and if you like puzzles, it should be good for you. Uh, not really your style. You know, that does not surprise me. I think for some people, they're not going to like how quiet it is. And also, if you're not into these kind of deduction things, which I'm barely into them, I, I think you could certainly bounce off of it. Um, this is a really good game, but I don't think it's going to be a game for everybody. So looking at some of the other comments, it does look like somebody, uh, best at Star Trek, said they thought the game would be more fun, but it never comes to the table. And I, I really do think that while this design is brilliant, it's not going to be, it's not going to hit all the right notes for a lot of people, I think. Um, it is a board game, absolutely, but to a certain extent, it feels a little bit other. Like, it kind of toes the space between board games and, like, puzzle hunts and, uh, you know, those puzzle books that you can get at a bookstore and that kind of thing, which means, you know, some people aren't going to be uh, locking into that as much as others, and some people aren't going to be uh, liking it as much as others. Um, Trevor uh, says, uh, was it pretty quiet around the table, given the mental crunching? Uh, yes, yes, it absolutely was. Um, I wasn't... I'm not exactly sure how much time it took, but I feel like it was probably around two hours. And I think a big part of that is because half of us had never played it before. None of us had played it at four players. Uh, so that's definitely things to be considering. And uh, yeah, there was no discussion <laughs> happening at this table. Everybody was, was pretty much just nose down behind their screen, thinking, 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 sighing, <laughs> sometimes going, oh! <laughs> and then everybody looks over like, oh man, what did they just figure out? I wish I could figure out something. Uh, so that's definitely like a, a fun environment to be in for some people. Uh, but you know, this is not a raucous type of, or even conversational game because you are spinning so many plates in your head. You're thinking about so many things. You don't even have room for conversation. And, and it's also interesting. Like when I'm playing board games, I like to talk about 
the game. Uh, sometimes I complain more than I should about, oh, I don't think I'm gonna win. Uh, sometimes I just talk about like, oh, that was really interesting how this happened there. And I kept finding myself biting my tongue when I was playing this game because I'd wanna be like, oh man, such and such and such. And I was like, that's gonna give away information. Like even just small talk, friendly chat around the table is going to give away information about being happy about that or, or even saying something like, man, I just wasted that last turn. Everybody will say, huh, they wasted their last turn. I wonder why. Like every utterance out of your mouth uh, essentially is uh, clues that your opponents can use, which does lend the game to a quiet atmosphere. Um, uh, Trevor asked, uh, how long did the teach take? <sighs> I think it certainly was no longer than 30 minutes. It was probably around the order of 30 minutes, uh, if I had to say. I feel like the teach could um, have been likely shorter uh, with a little bit more experience because the game is, you know, it's, it's somewhat novel. I mean, I didn't actually teach this game, but I feel like the first time I teach it, it would probably end up taking something on that order. I think a big part of it is the actual core teach. It's probably more like 15 to 20 minutes, but then it's going to lend itself to a bunch of clarifying questions as people say, wait, so what about this? And like, what did you mean by this? Or like, how do I do this? And you're like, oh, right, that's right, you do this. Uh, but I found that the uh, player aids that you have do a really good job of explaining a lot of how the game works. Uh, and so that, that definitely helped out as well. Uh, AJ asked if I've played Cryptid and if I have any comparisons to that. Um, I haven't. Uh, Cryptid is a game that I've been interested in playing for a very long time. Uh, that's my understanding is that's also a competitive uh, deduction style game where you have a map in front of you, a hex map, I think, and you're trying to find the cryptid on one specific spot. Uh, I don't know much else beyond that. I do think there's things like, you know, such and such terrain is always next to three away from that other terrain, like rules like that. Um, I have heard that cryptid is a game that you could win on the very first turn. Like it's possible, not always, but it's hypothetically possible. You could have enough information to figure out where the cryptid is, which could potentially lend itself to even more analysis paralysis as you you think like maybe you could find it. Whereas in the search for planet X, you feel like you know nothing for a long time. At the start of the game, there's actually a difficulty slider you can go with. I think I went with standard, which meant I got four clues. It was essentially four things I could cross out at the very beginning. So you know a little bit of information, but this is the kind of game where you know nothing, you know nothing, you know nothing. And then suddenly you're like, oh wait, I think I know something. And then it can cascade. In fact, when this game ended, uh, the player who took their turn, who found Planet X, was just about to survey something else. And then they, they, they suddenly looked at their board and they remembered, oh, wait a second, um, the uh, Planet X can never be next to a dwarf planet. And suddenly, they actually said that, like, oh, Planet X can't be next to a dwarf planet. They just forgot about that logic rule. And then suddenly they're scribbling, they're scribbling. And about a minute later, they said, I think I found it. <laughs> so they went from knowing nothing to, oh, not nothing, but but feeling like they were still totally in the dark to remembering this one tiny logic thing that's in every game. Planet X is never next to the dwarf planets, but they knew exactly where the dwarf planets were. And that just cascaded into them cracking the, the game and, and winning it. Uh, so that's definitely uh, a thing to keep in mind. Um, you're not going to be able to beat this game on the first many turns. Uh, Dustin mentioned that his problem is that he's way better at deduction stuff than his wife is. And yeah, I, I think that this definitely is a game that could lend to some skill gaps. But I mean, no, I say that, but I beat Jessica and she is so much better at this kind of deduction than I am. But again, I feel like a large part of that is because I got this gift of knowing what half of the board all of the dwarf planets were on, whereas she got less uh, potent information as the game went on. Um, also, I think uh, she undervalued just throwing out some papers when you're not entirely sure to get some victory points because this is a victory point game. Uh, and that's just, you know, playing the game for the first time, kind of feeling it out. Um, so 
this is a situation, I think, where certain people could be very frustrated by, by being nowhere near on the same level as others. But I, I do want to say that uh, while I think I'm a pretty smart person, I don't do these kind of deduction puzzles for fun like Jessica does. Uh, and uh, and like many other people, I, I don't really do puzzle hunts. I don't do this kind of stuff. And I still did pretty darn good in this game. So I don't think the stratification is going to be as extreme as it could be unless you're like a, a super logic puzzle type person. But again, even if you are, you could survey the night sky and it could say, hey, there's there's two out of the four dwarf planets and half the night sky. And you're like... Cool. Well, that's definitely good to know, but there's a big difference. There's a massive gulf between knowing where two is and where four are uh, when you do an initial survey like that. Neverglow said it feels like Clue for Gamers. That's actually something that somebody said around the table. They specifically said, this feels like modern Clue. <laughs> so I definitely agree with you there. Yeah, supposedly it uh, was released a month ago, but it's been delayed. Uh, the person that I played it actually got it for Christmas, so maybe it's that that first printing uh, went away. I'm not really sure. And yeah, supposedly this game has a solo mode, which I know nothing about. So if you really enjoy this kind of stuff, then and you like solo games, then that could certainly be something to uh, look into because it is quite the intricate little puzzle that it makes. Honestly, I'm super impressed with the app. Um, I didn't put any images of it up, but this is a lot of information that it has to have correct with the uh, variable rules that come into play. There's even specific rules relating to Planet X that gets revealed at certain times throughout the game, and all of these things have to match with all of the standard rules. I'm sure very smart coder people figured out ways to make this happen because obviously it works very well, but I don't know. For me, it seemed very impressive. Uh, so Trevor uh, mentioned uh, that you really like logic puzzles, uh, but you really like a lo uh, lively social atmosphere around the table, especially in a game that can go two hours. Um, that is something to consider. Uh, I will say that the people who taught us this game, they played it two players several times, and they seem to be very high on it. They, they were very curious to try it at four. Um, so even at lower player counts, which would probably have... I don't know if they'd be quicker necessarily because there's less information out there, but it would be your turn uh, twice as often. Uh, that could be a thing, but I'm certainly not trying to convince anybody they absolutely have to try this because it, it, it might not make the kind of uh, environment around the table that you're looking for. All right, I think on that note, let's move on to the next game. This one is The Transcontinental, which I actually had not heard of before a couple weeks ago. And a friend of ours on our Discord channel that where we play games, um, they backed it on Kickstarter, they played it on Tabletop Simulator, and they really wanted to play it again. So uh, we sat down and we played a four-player game of this. And it was the first time that it was played at four for the our friend who taught it to us. Uh, now, this is a train-themed game, but it is not Cube Rails. I know I've talked about Cube Rails games so much over the last many months. Uh, but while this is a train game, this is uh, more of a worker placement type uh, situation. Uh, and according to Board Game Geek, it says it's a 75 to 150 minute game. And I'll start right off at the beginning and say that... That's essentially what it ended up being. It was like two and a half hours, uh, maybe a little bit longer, but we were playing it at four players. And before I even talk about the details of the game, uh, I do want to say that um, <laughs> in retrospect, when uh, I took a look at Board Game Geek, um, it says the community thinks it's best at one to three players, best well, best at two to three players. Uh, and specifically, when I looked into this even more, it was not super recommended at four. And um, keep that in mind as I'm talking about the game, because I do think playing it at four was not the right way to go. But let's talk about how this game actually works, because it has some super cool mechanical ideas going on. 
Now, in the middle of the table, you have this track, this uh, 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 strip of board where a train is going to go down, and it's essentially um, you know, a one-dimensional uh, track that you, the train is going to be moving on. And on either side of that track, there are these action tiles, and they are put down so that they are offset. Um, so one set is above the track, and the other set is below. And essentially, um, what that means is every single one of these action tiles is touching two of the track spots in the middle, and they are staggered. Now, mechanically, the way this game works is you're going to be placing workers down, or I guess technically they're called telegrams in this game, onto the spots on the track. And then once everybody has decided they're done placing workers, this train token is going to move down the track. And it starts in the east, and it heads to the west. Once it uh, hits a token on the track, it stops. There's a little auction that I'll talk about in a second, and then the train turns around, and then you do more worker placement back on the track that's potentially been cleared, and once the train makes it all the way back to the east, the round is over, and you move on to the next round. Now, whenever the train reaches a spot that has your worker, you are going to perform actions on up to both of the tiles that it is adjacent to, because again, there's a tile above and below the track, and since they're staggered, that means no specific worker placement uh, spot is going to be identical to another one. Now, the action spots, the actions that show up on these tiles, they uh, differ. Uh, many of the tiles, uh, actually, uh, every single one of the tiles has development options on them, as well as an alternate action that you can perform. Uh, the alternate actions do things like potentially getting extra resources, potentially moving resources around, that kind of thing. But the big thing that you're doing on these tiles, especially early on in the game, is developing them. And the way you do this is you put resource cubes down on top of them. Now, this game has a super interesting uh, resource mechanic, where um, in the game, it's called the Transcontinental, there's just this one train that's going down and back, and that train is represented at the top of the play space, and every player has all of their own resources on this communal train. So behind the train, there are these carts uh, that can hold different types of resources, like coal, as well as lumber and steel and that kind of thing, as well as navvies, who I think are like engineers or something like that, uh, people that help make things happen. And when you get resources, you put them as cubes down onto the train. And if there's not enough room in that cart on the train, you take a new cart from the supply and you put it into the rail yard, and you put your uh, tokens on top of it, and later on, when specific actions happen, those uh, um, uh, carts can be added to the main train, and then they'll stay there for the rest of the game. So that means there is this communal... Uh, resource requirement or threshold that starts out relatively small, and as the game goes on and actions are taken, the train itself is going to get longer, and the overall communal train can hold more and more resources for each player. Uh, when you have a cube on a specific cart, that cube is what that is, so it's a navvy when it's there, and it's a piece of wood when it's on a different cart, and you actually place these down onto the development spots on the board. And then once all of the spots are full, you flip that over, and then every player who was either first or second most cubes in the development can then put their own little houses on top. And then in the future, when you go to that action place spot, only the players who have a house on that location can do um, specific actions while everyone else can always do the basic action that was there. So that means the overall board uh, evolves as the game goes on. Also, when you flip these tokens over, as well as when you add new carts to the communal train, you get victory points. So this is a game where you're trying to get victory points as much as you can, and you can get it from a lot of different ways. In fact, in this game, I took a huge lead in the mid-game because I was just going crazy on expanding the communal train. It just seemed to work out that I got a lot of coal, which is how you do it, and I'm not going to go into the details because that's actually one of the more complicated mechanical parts of the game, um, but 
I kept doing this. I kept adding carts on. And when I did that, I essentially enabled other people's resources to then become viable and usable. But I also got victory points for their resources, which was a really neat piggyback. Um, now, there are technically ways to pull resources from the yard over onto the board, but I'm not going to try to go into all of the nitty gritty details. So again, the main loop of this game is you place workers out, then the train slowly moves all the way to the end. And once it reaches the end, there is this blind auction where uh, players are going to uh, decide how many of specific resources they want to spend. It's a one-shot auction, you reveal, and then you figure out what the overall buying power of that auction is. And then with that in mind, you look at the tiles that are blocking the track and you see how many tiles the train is actually going to dig into essentially. And then in um, order from the person who bid the most, Players can take these tiles, which will give potential immediate one-shot actions, as well as victory points, and now the overall track of the transcontinental got longer. So that means as the game goes on, the train goes there and back, but every time it goes there, the track gets a little bit longer. So as the game goes on, there's longer and uh, a longer distance the train can go. There's more worker placement spots. The spots never get blocked, so that means the game gets actually more loose to a certain extent from a worker placement perspective as the game goes on. And this unlocks new locations that can be developed to then be flipped over to get victory points and have new action spots to go onto to get resources and stuff that you need in order to win the game. So that is the general idea. You're gonna keep going until you reach a certain spot on this track and it's an indeterminate number of rounds. And there are so many cool things uh, mechanically and uh, uh, to think about while you're playing this game. Uh, specifically with the worker placement, the fact that you do both of these actions is really interesting. But also there is a sequential nature to the game where the train is going to start in the east and go to the west. So you want to make sure you have the resources that you need at the right time in order to maybe later on actually put those down and develop a tile to then potentially flip it over. But there are actions that let you actually put cubes down, uh, resource cubes down onto spots even farther ahead from you. So these can actually be sniped. You might say, okay, I'm set up. I've, I'll have the resources to finish this one spot off. And then somebody else does a special action down over here that you forgot to think about. And then they actually complete that thing before you even got there. But now you can always still do the other action on that spot if it potentially works out for you. So you have this sequential worker placement, but then again, it is two um, phased. So you have the first phase where you go there, then there's an auction, and then the train comes back. And before the train comes back, you can place more workers, but you have a set number of workers in the round. So that means in the beginning, you might not put all of your workers out. You might put like two of them, wait for the train to go all the way there. And then before the train comes back, you place more workers out until all of them are out. Out. There's also a bonus worker you can gain, which I won't go into the details of, but obviously that means when, when the train gets to a spot, that uh, worker is removed. So that means if somebody went onto the spot that you really want to go onto, well, maybe you can place onto it when the train comes back, which is a super interesting idea. Um, I also love this resource mechanic where you have all of these cubes communally on the same train, but going back to how you actually add these tiles down. Again, I'm not going to talk about the details of it, but I will say this was the hardest mechanical part of the game. Um, one of my friends who actually ended up winning the game, um, who wins a lot of games, very smart board gamer, continued to not understand this part of the game. Just like <laughs> they had to be explained it like four times. And it's not because they're dumb. It's because it is a strange thing that can actually kind of force you into a situation where you don't like, where you might have to spend your coal resources to place cards out that might give you a couple points, but might actually help your opponents more. So from a mechanical perspective, this area, while I love the idea of a communal train, I kind of wish the act of adding the trains on was a little bit simpler, a little bit easier to grok. 
Now, there is one part of the game that I've glossed over entirely so far, and that's because it's a part that I don't actually like very much, and that are ally cards. Now, there are these stacks of cards um, that have allies on them, and you can get them um, through a variety of ways, action spots as well as at the start of the game. And these cards have a variety of different uh, one-shot actions on them, and they really vary. Uh, and I just did not like the hidden information of it, and I didn't like the randomness of it. Um, this is a Euro-style game. It's a resource acquisition and uh, uh, usage type of game, and you could set up this round, place your workers down in specific spots, you have this great plan, nobody's gonna snipe that, and then somebody plays a card that says, just kidding, I get all this stuff and I place all this stuff, they flip the tile over and now your placements are kind of bunk. And that's because of something that you could not plan for because they had a card you didn't know existed, and these cards are so varied that you can't even necessarily lean on knowledge of what people might have. I mean, if you play this game a bunch, then perhaps that comes into it. But I, I have to admit, I, I really wish that the game had not been designed with the ally cards like this. Like, I'm okay with a variety of the actions that these bring in, but for me personally, I would drastically prefer if you, uh, at the, during setup, perhaps shuffle these cards up and put one out, and every time you did an ally action, you just did the action that's printed on the card so that you know that that really powerful development action could be activated by somebody, or maybe even every round you put three new ones out. So if you want that extra variety, you get that in each of the rounds, although that might cause too much analysis paralysis. Now, this is way beyond even a house rule. Like, you cannot play the game in the way that I just said and, and have it be even remotely balanced. That's more just me complaining about wishing the game did something a little bit differently. Uh, it's not enough for me to hate the game, but it definitely rubbed me a little bit wrong. Um, the other thing that... <laughs> maybe it was just a one thing too many, is the fact that when the game is over, you are actually going to be scoring some uh, hidden objective cards that you have in front of you that want you to have houses on specific icons. There's all these little icons on the development spots around the board as well as other locations. And if you have certain sets of these, you can get a bunch of endgame victory points. And I really struggled to try and make those happen. And I think it's just because there's so many other things happening. So perhaps, you know, after playing this one more, it would be easier to piece these together, but that, along with the ally cards, just felt like things that didn't necessarily need to exist for this game to still not to still be quite interesting. It seemed like the game leaned into a little bit more randomness and a little bit more heaviness than I would necessarily prefer. But again, those aren't necessarily damning things. Um, realistically, the biggest issue that I had with this game was the downtime. Uh, it was long, and uh, I totally understand why on Board Game Geek. It says, some people have voted that it's not recommended at four players. Um, there's really no balance, uh, uh, setup changes for the player counts. So what that means is you're going to be spending that much more time when you add another person onto the table. I kind of wish there were less workers, like in a four-player game. Sure, you'd get less stuff done, but maybe the rounds would elapse a little bit quicker and maybe the token starts a little bit closer. Like, this didn't... Again, I'm okay with playing a two and a half hour game that's really thinky and you get to enjoy a lot of the decisions, but I spent a lot of time waiting for somebody to take their turn when I knew exactly what I wanted to do or even potentially worse, while this worker placement mechanic is super cool, it can lend to large amounts of downtime because let's say to do the plan that you really want to do, maybe get resources before the blind bid, you place all of your workers then you're going to do nothing when the train comes back. You've used all of your workers. So there's a significant amount of time. The train gets there, you do the blind bid, you did all your actions, and now you're waiting for the train to slowly make its way back, bouncing on other players' workers, and they're maybe getting their bonus worker to then place out, and they're thinking about how all these things interact with their hand of special power cards that they have from these allies. 
And there were definitely times where I just, I was in um, a tabletop simulator where I, I just alt tabbed out and started surfing Reddit. <laughs> I, I, I hate to be that person who like wasn't actively paying attention, but there were just significant parts of the game where I, there was nothing to be done for paying attention. I was just waiting. And you know when people were crunching through all these options, it just got a little bit long. Uh, so this is one I would not mind playing again at three, but I don't think I would ever play this one at four. Uh, and while I do wish that um, some of the uh, mechanical parts of the game were modified, I don't think it necessarily makes the game bad. It just makes the game not ideal for me. Uh, like as the game stands, it's probably like, you know, a seven out of 10, but I feel like if the allies had been done in a way that was not so surprise random, and if the the game had been simplified just a little bit, like 10%, uh, this game could have jumped to a, a, an eight or even a nine as far as my overall, uh, uh, enjoyment of the game. Um, I am really big into different mechanics that come into games. Like I'm a, a sucker for uh, cute different ideas. And this game has a ton of those, which is a big part of the reason why I think I would play this game again at lower player counts, because I think the, the worker placement spot with the stagger different locations is cool. I think the communal uh, resource uh, uh, limit uh, whole situation is really interesting. And I think understanding how those trains get put onto the back of the train will be much easier on a second play. There's so many really cool ideas to this game that I don't think the ideas that I dislike destroy the whole thing. It just, again, leaves me in a situation where I don't like it anywhere near as much as I potentially could. Uh, so I see some people asking about the Transcontinental uh, being on Kickstarter, and yes, it was uh, a while ago, many, many months ago. I'm not sure when it's actually going to be uh, being delivered. Uh, I will say that the uh, Tabletop Simulator mod for the Transcontinental is the most advanced mod I've ever played. And I've played the crew mod, which is also incredibly advanced. This mod does so much. Uh, it's amazing. Like you, you put the tokens down and a bunch of things change. Uh, when you actually put the, the resources down in the spots, like things automatically flip over, it automatically scores things for you. Um, it's really impressive overall. Like a lot of coding was put into the mod for this one. Well, I don't think I see any other specific questions about the Transcontinental, uh, so let's go ahead and move on to the last game we'll be talking about today, which is Umbravia. Now, this one uh, came out recently, uh, and uh, I'm actually not sure how widely distributed it is at this point. I was sent a press copy of this one. It's a two to four player game, uh, supposedly plays best at three, according to Board Game Geek. And I played this game once and it was four players. Um, I can tell you right now that I'm not gonna be complaining about the four player game like I did with the Transcontinental. It was totally fine at four players. Um, so let's jump into how this game plays because I talked before about enjoying uh, kooky mechanics and really fresh ideas, and this game has some really interesting fresh ideas. Uh, now, mechanically, you have a board in the middle of the table, which is a square grid, and you have these square tiles that fit onto it that have various paths on them. And then each player has a bag in front of them that has these little uh, flower tokens, essentially. Uh, for the most part, you have the uh, regular color, but you have some pale pastel ones in there as well, which I'll talk about in a second. Now, the way each round works is players are going to be, first of all, revealing four of these tiles onto a communal board. And the rotation is important because it's actually randomized at the start of the game uh, when you make that deck. And you place these out and they will not be uh, rotated again. Then every player is going to dig into their bag and pull three tokens out, which could again be your standard uh, uh, energy tokens, I think they're called, or the pale ones, which I think are called soul tokens, something like that. They're more powerful for the bidding. And then behind your player screen, you're going to be placing these three tokens down and it's always three. Uh, now you're going to put them onto the one, two, three, or four spot. You can 
consolidate them or spread them out, and then everybody reveals their uh, screens and places the tokens they allocated onto the specific tiles on the spots one, two, three, or four. After that, you put your shield back and you draw three more tokens and you do this again to then reveal the shield and then place these out. So there are two rounds of uh, hidden bidding, essentially. And this is really important because that first round will show you some intentions of the players. Like if this was just one round, you reveal and be like, oh, wow, that's you know crazy. I didn't think you'd do that. And then you move on. I love the... Um, agency that this game gives you, uh, and also the paranoia that it gives you by doing this double stage thing where you reveal and you put some out and then you have to bid again. And you're looking to see what the other people did and what are they potentially going to do based off of what they've done already and based off of what other people have done. Now, once you've done these two rounds of bidding, you will then look at these boards and the board that has the least number of tokens will get the one token placed next to it, which means it'll get placed first. Then the second least will get the two, then the three, and then the four. So essentially the more tokens on that tile, the later on in the round it'll be placed. Then the player who has a majority control of that specific tile, who has the most of their tokens on there, uh, is going to be able to place that tile. And in particular, the kind of pastel soul tokens count as two, whereas the regular ones count as one. Now, this is important because that two count will potentially put you in control of placing that tile down, but then you remove all of those soul tokens from that tile from the game. They're permanently gone. So that means they help you with trying to win the bids, but they will never make it onto the main board. Then the player who had the uh, most uh, control over that tile or most uh, points on that tile effectively will place it onto an empty spot on the board. And again, they cannot rotate it. They just have to place it with this specific orientation. And if by placing that they have completed one of these growing roads on the board, then you immediately score the road doing some area control. Now the road is completed when there are no uh, empty edges facing to a spot that you could place another tile down. So uh, that means uh, a tile with a corner could be placed onto a spot where it immediately completes itself and it's a size one, whereas you could place something else out to have a gigantic scoring uh, with tons and tons of tiles. Now, when these tiles score, you're going to count up the number of tokens that the players have on the entire path. And this is really where the game gets interesting. Uh, well, I take it back. The bidding is also quite interesting, but this is where mechanically it gets pretty kooky, honestly, because... There are these tokens on the tiles when you place them, but then when they get added to these paths, those previous tokens kind of group up with all of the other ones. You are just doing majority scoring for the entire path, but the majority, the, the area that's being scored is going to be ebbing and flowing. It's going to be, uh, well, I guess not uh, ebbing. It's just going to be growing as the game goes on until it gets scored. Now, when this scores, the player who has the most tokens will then get uh, one soul token from their scoring pile equal to the number of tiles in that overall scoring area. So that means if you score a one tile and you have the most control of it, you get essentially one soul token. And if it's a five uh, tile long scoring and you have the most, you'll pull five of those tokens off of your little board off to the side. And that's important because this is a race game. I know I've said points and stuff like that, but realistically, you just want to be the player to get all of your soul tokens in play. Now, when you gain these, they actually go into your bag. And remember, when you pull them out of your bag and bid with them, they then are removed from the game after you actually place them out. So they have a one-way journey from the score pile into the remove from the game pile. Um, and your bag is going to be kind of changing as the game goes on. So this means if you have a really big scoring and you get like five of these things and you dump them in your bag, the next time you do bidding, you are much more likely to pull these soul tokens out, which means you are going to be in a stronger position to win and place these tiles out. But remember, you don't actually put the soul tokens down. They are removed. So the soul tokens are a double-edged sword. Um, they're not 
bad, but they're also not good. Uh, they just help you in certain circumstances and don't help you in others. You could place them down into a situation where you can place a tile down that has none of your other tokens on it because all of your soul tokens were removed from it. So this game has a... <laughs> A couple different ways that you can uh, uh, approach it. So we played a four-player game, and uh, in this game, I'll just go right out and say that I won, but it was close. Uh, now, as we were playing through the game, I had a strategy of, well, it seems really difficult to figure out what people are going to be trying to do and what they're trying to bid on, so I went for a piecemeal strategy. I said, you know what, I'm just going to get points slowly but surely. I'm going to score tons of single uh, uh, spots. You know, you put a one tile down and it, it's immediately uh, 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 closed off on the edges. You score it. I have the most tokens. Boom. I got a point. I pull one off the pile. And I think at the start of the game, there are 11 of these tokens on the pile. So that was my um, my mode throughout the entire game. I, I probably got most of those tiles off, uh, most of those soul tokens off one at a time. Whereas other players were doing this massive boom or bust thing. Uh, in particular, Jessica, <laughs> she, um, I think she pulled all of her tokens off with just two scorings. One of them was like seven or eight tokens that she got to pull off because she had, you know, like 20 plus of her own tokens on this massive path that was out there on the board that was ever growing and it was just highly contentious. Now it's worth noting the second place player will get half the number of soul points as the first player and then third place will get half of the second. So you will get points for not being in the lead, but you get a lot more for being in the lead on these. And what ended up happening is, um, in the game state, I had emptied essentially all of my tokens off of this tile, but you only win once the tile is removed. And there is this really smart mechanic. It's almost like they play tested this game and they played with people like me because in order to pull this last tile off to remove it, because it essentially counts, it is two soul tokens, which means if you just do a scoring and you would get one, you get nothing because you have to do a scoring of at least two and you have to win that scoring. So that means in order to actually win the game, you have to have a majority of your tokens on a scoring that is at least two paths long. And that is significant. Again, I went through the whole game doing little single uh, scores here. I maybe scored two once or twice, but I was mostly focused on singles. And I got to the point where I was just down to my last tile and I was trying to orchestrate a situation where I could actually be in the lead on a spot that had more than uh, more than one. But since I'd been doing my piecemeal strategy, I didn't really have tokens on the board. And then a turn or two later, Jessica came roaring back and pulled all of her tokens off of her tile and just left the tile back. In fact, she was so close to um, removing the tile as well. She almost went from having like, I think seven uh, uh, tokens on her tile to winning the game because she almost scored a nine size path. But I think it ended up being eight size based off of how the bidding went and the control and all that. Uh, so <laughs> as we continue with the game, I seem to be a clear leader. And uh, my friend Dave also seemed to be really, we were neck and neck, like just one away from each other. We kept doing small scorings, but he was also getting in on like the second and third places on the big ones. And then <laughs> there was a moment where suddenly everyone had cleared all of their tokens off of the tiles. So what that meant is we entered sudden death and we all got there in different routes. Again, Jessica got there with two massive scorings. I got there with like eight tiny little scorings. But here we are at the beginning of a round. The first person essentially to do a two scoring is going to win the game. And based off of how the tiles came out, I was able to manipulate the bid for the first half of the scoring to put myself into a situation where I was able to lock it down. Uh, I wasn't the first tile to be placed, but the way the board was, I was able to have it essentially guaranteed. And it was kind of a weird situation, actually. My friend was in a situation, Dave, where he knew that I was going to win. That was guaranteed. But based off of how he placed this tile down, another friend could also win because you can actually share in the victory based off of some tiebreakers. So what that meant was my friend was deciding 
do I win by myself or do I win with somebody else? And they ended up just flipping uh, a tile or something like that to decide. And it, it went in the way that uh, I actually won uh, So by myself. So it was a bit of a kingmaker dilemma in that situation. I've only played the game once. I have no idea how often that's going to actually end up happening, but it did happen in this specific game. But it was fascinating to have a sudden death situation after all of this time and after all of these tokens piling up and all these paths to, to find ourselves in that situation. And based off of some moves that I did with some special tiles, there's some special action tiles that change things around. Um, I was able to make really good use of it. Uh, if you're familiar with the game, I, uh, I did a big void tile placement on the previous round, which let me have a lot of control for the next one. But again, I'm not trying to go into those details. So uh, from a like impression perspective, uh, I think everybody enjoyed the game. I think everybody was fascinated with the game, but I'm not sure if everyone around the table would be interested in playing it again, if that makes sense. Uh, I think this is a really good game mechanically, but I do not think this is going to be a game for everybody. Uh, in particular, I had a great conversation with Jessica about this afterwards because she felt like she was really stumbling because it was such a psychological game. Like she was... Uh, constantly in these massive scorings with these huge uh, paths that were being made. And so she was constantly thinking, what are they going to do? What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? Trying to think and double think and triple think. And I thought that was fascinating because for me, I didn't play a psychological game at all. I played completely selfishly. Every single bidding round, I was just trying to find a tile that I could snipe, have control over, slap down onto the board, score it, get my one soul point, move on to the next round. So I wasn't really paying attention to what other people were doing for the most part, I mean, I, I wasn't playing my own isolated game, but most of my uh, thought process was how do I corner one of these tiles to score a point or two? Whereas um, Jessica, because she had, she was already super invested in these massive potential scorings, she was in a situation where like she couldn't not think about what other people were doing because they could snipe it away and then this all of this work that had gone in through many turns to get this huge scoring would just crumble. So there was definitely a, an interesting two paths to take. And then we ended up in a sudden death situation where really anybody could have won. So that was really fascinating to see two different ways of playing the game. But it also was a situation where Jessica isn't sure if she wants to play it again, because she's not crazy about playing games that are very psychological like that. Now, she doesn't dislike the, the mechanic of the game. It's just a personal preference type of thing. And from a mechanics perspective for me, I definitely have a hard time Pulling my individual thoughts away because from a mechanical geek perspective, there's so many cool things going on here for such a simple light game. But then from a, like a pure enjoyment perspective, I had fun. Uh, it was a fine time. I would probably say um, I'd play lots of other games instead of this one. But that's, again, because I'm not crazy about blind bidding in general from a personal perspective, me as Jonathan Cox. But me as a mechanics nerd, oh my gosh, this is so cool. There's so many amazing layers. Like I feel like, feel like this game was very well designed. Um, uh, for the one part, I've already talked about why I think the uh, two-phase bidding is so much more interesting than the first-phase bidding. But on top of that, the fact that these tiles are placed down in the order in which you have the majority of tokens on them from any player's color is also fascinating because what that meant is I was oftentimes in a situation, as other people were, of wanting to control a tile, but also wanting to place it before other tiles were placed to try and position myself. In my case, it's because I wanted to do it so that I could actually get that little scoring. And for other people, they wanted to like maybe make a big path bigger before they were able to score it and get even more points for themselves. 
But of course, if you want to control that tile, you have to put your tokens down onto it. And the more tokens that are on it, the later on in turn order it's going to be. So this is a really fascinating uh, seesaw of decisions that you're doing. And there were definitely times where after the first bid, um, I was like in a slight majority and I would put like one more token down onto that tile, but then I would load a bunch of uh, my other two tokens down onto a tile I didn't even care about to make sure that it went later. Like, I wasn't even dry, uh, vying to control that specific tile in that situation. I was just trying to sync it in the tile placement order because that's something that I really needed to do. Also, these soul tiles are worth two for the purpose of winning control of placing this tile down. And then of course they're removed. So that means they are worth double the um, uh, winning power of the regular tokens. So that means you can certainly use those to try and gain control of a tile that you want to be placed earlier on in the round because it's worth two instead of one for one token, which is again how this order is decided. And that, oh my gosh, I, I'm just so impressed with how all of that works and how those decisions came together. Then out here in the main board, I don't think I've ever played a majority scoring game where the majority areas evolved like this. Um, like I said, I went the whole game making these tiny little things, honestly, because it seemed less stressful for me personally, because it seemed very stressful to be involved in these massive scorings. I could see uh, my opponents, um, in general, it seemed like the other three people were kind of vying in them. Uh, Jessica and Nick were trying to get the majority. Dave did a really good job of streamlining behind and getting some second place and third place scorings. And I ignored those massive ones, essentially, not, not entirely, but I, I tried to ignore them for the most part while I did my other things. And occasionally I would get bought into them. So from a stress perspective, there, there could be a lot of stress in here. I played a relatively low stress game because the strategy that I went for was low stress, whereas other players seem to find themselves in much more stressful situations. And a lot of people are going to love that stress and they're going to love those moments of revealing the, uh, the, the player shields and seeing how people went. And I'm... That makes it sound like we didn't love it. Um, in our situation, we definitely enjoyed it. We had lots of groans and cheers and stuff when we pulled the, the the boards back and when we realized how this order would go and what this would end up happening. Again, more groans and more cheers. Um, when the dust settled, I think everybody enjoyed the game and was happy they played it. But again, based off of personal preferences, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, a couple people around the table would not actively try to play the game again. I think for me, a big draw for playing this game again would be just exploring this interesting space. You know, it's a blind bidding area majority that changes and there's just so many little things. Jessica made a point uh, when we were about halfway through the game <laughs> where she was just like, this game is so much more uh, complex than I expected. Uh, I think she might've said it was more interesting than she expected as well. Uh, Cause when I first taught the rules, it's a quite a simple game overall. Um, her perspective was, oh, this is gonna be like, you know, a, a light little, you know, 45 to 60 minute game. You know, there's some things going on there, but whatever. And then when we got in the middle of the game, it was like, no, this is, this is really <laughs> deep <laughs> to, a lot, uh, to a large extent. But also since it's a blind bidding style game, there's no perfect information, and I like that. I mean, downtime could potentially be a thing as people are arduously thinking, oh, do I do this? Oh, do I do that with the bidding? But at a certain point, you have to just commit. Like, it's not like you can think about it until you come up with the right answer. Because there's blind bidding, you just have to come up to the point where you say, my gut's saying I go this way, and I give it a shot. Uh, there are definitely some downtimey moments later on in the game with the massive scoring where we had to, like, count all the tokens and kind of group them up to figure out, you know, who has 14 and who has 17 and who has 13 and that kind of thing. And thinking about the ramifications of those when you add these new tiles down, because that one has two and that, of that one color and one of the other, there are definitely some things to think about. But I wouldn't say that downtime was a problem for us. And I wasn't paying super close attention to how long the game took, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was 
90 to 100 minutes, something like that. And again, this is a four-player game, which is the maximum player count. And uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, according to BoardGameGeek, it is best at three. Uh, I don't think there are any balance uh, or setup changes for three versus four-player games. There are, are some different things for the two-player game, which I did not even look into. And it wouldn't necessarily surprise me that it was better uh, best at three. I think it'll be a little bit less stressful overall with just two other people that you're competing against instead of three. Uh, and I would probably be more interested in playing this at three than four in the future. But I don't think I'd say no to playing it again at four. So that's kind of where I land with Umbravia. I think it's a fascinating very well-designed game. I think it's a, a great game, honestly, but I'm not sure how excited I personally am to keep uh, playing it. And I do think some of my friends might take a little bit of convincing to play again. I think they, they came, they saw, they enjoyed, but they didn't necessarily fall in love and they, they'd probably be more interested in playing other things. Uh, Charles said uh, that they're strongly considering Umbravia. They think it looks fun, but we'll probably try it before buying. Um, it could turn out to be a game you're ter really terrible at. Um, yeah, I think this is the kind of game that most people will feel really bad at. I, I have a hard time imagining a person who's like, oh yeah, that's going to be in my wheelhouse, but yeah, maybe some people do. Um, I will say that this is available to be played on the internet somehow. I didn't do my homework. I think it's a Tabletopia or Tabletop Simulator, or maybe both. Um, but I do believe this one is playable online. Um, I could also be wrong. <laughs> so uh, definitely double check that. It should, it should be uh, not too hard to figure that one out, but there's probably a way to, to figure that one out. Well, at this point, I've now talked about all four games I was planning on, and uh, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, this was recorded live, uh, and I did uh, refer to some of the images that were on screen, and obviously you could not see those since this was a podcast. I tried to do that as little as possible, but uh, either way, I would uh, love any feedback anybody has, uh, as well as potential comments about stuff that I've said for these specific games, and again, you can leave those as comments on the YouTube page for this vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. Thanks for listening.